Um, hi, everyone. I want to welcome you to Untitled Podcast. These are a series of episodes that Name Publications, me, um, have partnered up with Untitled Art Fair here to produce. Uh, we've been do- we're going to do a series of three today. We're on episode two. Um, I am Natalia Zuluaga. I am a co-director of Name Publications, which is a nonprofit press and exhibition space here in Miami. And we want to thank Untitled Art Fair for inviting us to do this program, but also for inviting us to join them as one of the booths this year. So I am here with a dear friend um, and collaborator colleague here in Miami, Kevin Arrow. Kevin Arrow is a multifaceted artist and cultural producer living and working in Miami, Florida. His work has been exhibited in South Florida since the mid-1980s and is in the permanent collections of the Museum of Contemporary Art North Miami, the Perez Art Museum Miami, the Bass Museum of Art Miami Beach, and Miami Beach Art in Public Places. Throughout Arrow's professional career, his work has taken on various forms, including drawing, collage, painting, film, publishing, and audiovisual projects, merging his interests in obsolete media, archival tendencies, sacred geometry, and the ephemeral object. Through his work, he is continually seeking to find the sublime within the mundane and the mundane within the sublime experience, in addition to investigating the interchangeability of both. We brought Kevin, actually, because on top of being an artist and a person of our community here, you are also an incredible archivist and have amassed a sort of collection of material or objects related to material culture in and around art, music, and fashion. And one of the sort of driving points of Swamp Archaeologies, which is the name of this series, has been to kind of dig up or unearth these untold stories of Miami's art history, which many people have told or we have remnants of, but somehow, because the horizon of the ocean has a flat effect on our memory seem to sort of get forgotten every once in a while, especially during these moments like art fairs and things like that. So I kind of want to bring this back and we want to focus with you, Kevin, on the 80s and 90s here in Miami Beach. And so I'm going to ask you to go ahead and take it away. Well, first, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. And uh, I've got way too many images and stories to share in the short amount of time. So slow me down if I need to be slowed down or speed me up if I need to speed up. So I was asked to talk about art in the 80s and 90s. And then Natalia was like, but what about before the 80s and the 90s? So I just want to breeze through some figures that were uh, people I personally knew and down here and people who I feel are uh, integral to sort of what happened and continues to happen here in South Florida. The ripples of their presence are still moving around us. Um, I want to start with Bunny Yeager, a photographer, a female photographer working in primarily a male-dominated industry in the 1950s. Uh, She was hosting the Artists and Models Ball at the Deauville Hotel in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. I just want to call out there the Deauville Hotel and 1962 being the year that I was born. Uh, There is... um, Bunny Yeager photographing Betty Page, who is a cult icon uh, model. Any picture that you see of Betty Page taken by Bunny Yeager, they only had a working relationship for two years. And then that was like 1953 and 54. And then Betty Page found religion and left uh, the modeling career and just left behind uh, this great sort of body of work. Uh, no pun intended. Um, here's a picture of Betty Page, most likely taken here on Miami Beach. Um, 
another figure that's very important was um, Purvis Young, who uh, was called Purvis of Overtown. Very accessible artist. I contend he was the most prolific artist to live in Miami, maybe the Southeast, maybe the entire country. He was the most prolific artist I had ever met. And um, here's an example of a Purvis Young installation called Good Bread Alley. I think this has largely been torn down, but he was working in the street and he made his work accessible for the community. You can pick up a painting or a drawing from Purvis very easily. Um, before the art world descended upon Purvis as this major figure, he was embraced by the community. And here's uh, an important example of that. His artwork is on the cover of this Little Beaver LP, which was produced here in Miami. Um, photographers have historically been coming down here um, since the 60s and 70s uh, earlier. Uh, but here's a Stephen Shore photo of Miami Beach and, of course, William Eggleston in the 80s. I am jumping around. I'm not going chronologically. Um, Jack Pearson is an artist, a contemporary artist that we're all familiar with, and he um, was living here in a, an efficiency apartment on Washington Avenue, probably just a five-minute walk from here. Um, he then created this tableau of his apartment setting, called it Diamond Life, and it now resides in a museum. Uh, it was brought to Miami for an exhibition 20 years ago, um, and when we set the work up, Jack Pearson wanted to sit in the chair, light a cigarette, and listen to one of the albums. So here he is listening to uh, the Yoko Ono LP and smoking a cigarette in the gallery of a museum, even though I insisted, please don't do that. So you see Jack sitting on a chair, listening to a record. Uh, the Deauville Hotel was a sort of center focus. Um, I, I, that's why I circled it on that first slide. Here's the Deauville in 1962. Uh, 1957, and then um, there's the Napoleon Ballroom you see being demolished. Uh, this is where the artists and model ball took place, and uh, this is uh, what the Deauville Hotel looked like just a few weeks ago on November 13th. Uh, the owner of the building uh, allowed it to slip into disrepair, and instead of uh, fixing it, they chose to demolish it, and that is one Reoccurring theme here in South Florida, the building and demolition, but like the tides coming and going. So um, instead of being chronological, I would ask if whether or not this, this presentation or the way in which you look at Miami's history has a lot to do with that ebb and flow of building and rebuilding. Does it run a parallel to those movements in real estate and politics the way that... Yeah, it's not quite as like set up like the lunar tides, you know, we don't know, like the, the financial markets run at their own sort of pace and the real estate markets run at their own pace. So does the coming and goings of the tides. But there's these weird concurrencies that are happening. And I always used to liken it down here to a pendulum swinging, you know, and specifically on South Beach, the pendulum has always been swinging down here where it would go from being like, you know, super glitzy and mink and mignon, and then it's like, um, you know, really kind of rough around the edges. And it was at its best, I think, when it was rough around the edges, and artists were living on Lincoln Road Mall for $400 a month in storefronts and creating their own galleries or pop-up bookstores or movie theaters. I mean, that was popular on Lincoln Road Mall, 
which of course you can't get near that real estate anymore um, for a while. Also, I think it's important to point out a very uh, historically significant group of artists, um, black artists that were called the Florida Highway Men. And I want to thank Gary Monroe, who is a photographer um, working here in Florida and a, a scholar who wrote the definitive uh, book on the Florida Highway Men landscape painters. So these were artists that were largely unrepresented working in South Florida, driving around and painting these amazing skyscapes and driving from place to place and selling their paintings out of the trunk of their cars. So we have a beautiful sunset scene here um, and then a painting by Harold Newton um, of like a, a hardwood hammock in the Everglades. Uh, their work is, there are a few of them or the descendants of them are still working and painting and you can still find work by these artists and I encourage you to do so. Um, then there was Louis Vandercar, who was considered to be the most popular artist in South Florida in the 60s and 70s. I mean, I found some newspaper articles referring to him of like the Andy Warhol of Miami, um, hardly, but he uh, was a painter, he was a sculptor, and he was a self-professed warlock. And um, his abstract paintings kind of look like the... Uh, artificial intelligence, AI-driven paintings that you see now that are so popular. So there's two examples of uh, Louis van der Kar's abstractions, and then he was also known for these um, outlandish, crazy, mythological concrete sculptures. And there was an con ornamental concrete yard up in North Miami that was full of his sculptures that only two or three years ago was completely bulldozed, and they allowed this one work uh, to remain, which they, um, the city of North Miami has promised to uh, conserve and maybe uh, reevaluate, and people can start learning more about Louis Vandercar. He was also commissioned to do these crazy concrete sculptures. This one is here on, on Merritt Island up coast, uh, 1961, um, and this is what that looks like now. Um, the For those of you who can't see, it's basically melted into the ocean. It's a dragon sculpture, a full, a full life-size dragon. If there are, I don't know what life-size dragons are, but larger than life-size dragon that you were able to actually go inside of. There were rooms and... Um, then I asked Gary Monroe, who was down here photographing South Florida extensively in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, to share a couple of images with us. So he... Um, provided this wonderful photograph of a lone figure standing alone in a uh, dressing room at the Fountain Blue Hilton. It's the backstage at a drag show and you see the drag performer standing there and her behind her is a mirror. So you see her reflection in the mirror and there's a mirror alongside of her and behind her. Gary Monroe's work needs to be looked at closely. It's an amazing, he has an amazing body of work. Um, here's another example of Espanola Way on Miami Beach, looking east towards the Cameo Theater. Um, it was kind of run down by 1981. And uh, when you turn around and look back westward, uh, there's another view of uh, Espanola Way. And this building that we're looking at was called the Cameo Hotel. And this whole area, this whole street, uh, was owned by Dacra Realty at the time. Um, and 
that it was owned by Craig Robbins, who is an art collector and a philanthropist and a great humanitarian. He gave this um, gave this building over to artists to live in and work in. And at the time, uh, it was like a Spanish village, and it was designed in the 1920s to be like an authentic Spanish village. So there were little houses behind here, and artists like Kenny Scharf were living here. Uh, Antonio Miraldo was living here, as was Roberto Juarez. And then a lot of artists um, were coming from Cuba, and Craig Robbins was giving them space to live and work. Um, Gary showed me some of the art and culture here in the 70s on South Beach, and he provided this picture of a woman uh, basically showing off a painting of Hitler as an angel of death, which she had hung behind a sheet in her living room in, around 1970. And then here's a photograph of an artist named Abe Resnick in his apartment. Most of these artists working down here in the early 70s, uh, 80s, they were all, a large majority of them were from Eastern Europe. They were coming here uh, after they were in displaced persons camps after the Second World War. Most of them were Holocaust survivors and processing their experiences through their artwork. Um, so concurrencies, you have artists like Abe Resnick in his apartment making his obsessive work. You also have artists like Dwayne Hansen who is living in Hollywood, Florida, working out of a warehouse off of Sterling Road. That's Dwayne Hansen on the left side of the screen. And then in the middle you have uh, Bob Teeley uh, who's exhibiting here at Untitled actually. And he is a, um, a sculptor based in Brooklyn and based in Miami, and he was the subject for the football player sculpture made by Dwayne Hansen, and that resides in the collection of the Low Art Museum in Miami. Gary Monroe also had a tremendous access, so here he is um, photographing the Mesals who were documenting Cristo, who was wrapping uh, some islands, surrounding some islands in Biscayne Bay, in 1983, uh, he had access to the workers who you see here sort of taking a break on one of the small uh, islands in Biscayne Bay and another photograph of them pulling the fabric around the islands ankle deep in water. And I feel this image of the surrounded islands from the air kind of uh, is a defining image for Miami in many ways and I feel like if there is one art world or a contemporary art world, curators, a lot of people turn their attention to Miami when this project happened. And I think what we're, we're experiencing now started back then and before. I mean, this Cristo project took uh, many years to unfold. So, you know, we see it in, you know, it took between 1980 and 1983 to actually happen. And, uh, Previous to that, you have collectors like um, Dr. Marvin Sackner, who instigated this uh, Roy Lichtenstein mermaid sculpture, which is here on Miami Beach. These are photos, Polaroids that are in the Vasari collection in downtown Miami, which is a, an archive documenting Florida's art history from 1945 to the present. And it is a very much a living archive that you can visit, research, and learn a great deal about South Florida. Um, also, at the same time, uh, we have Klaus Oldenburg and Kuz von Bruggen, 
and their dropped bowl and scattered slices and peels in downtown Miami. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't say how important Miami-Dade Art and Public Places has been to this community's um, personality. I mean, uh, back in the 80s to this moment, they are commissioning art constantly. And, um, you know, Michael Spring, we need a statue of Michael Spring somewhere in this city because he's been responsible for a large majority of it. And one project that really goes not really spoken about a lot is the 28-acre park in downtown designed by Isamu Naguchi. He was given 28 acres. He did the landscape architecture. He did the, um, the fountain. And then there's three wor sculptural works from left to right. There's the light tower. There's slide mantra in the center. And then the Challenger Memorial. Just one quick thing about the light tower. For many years, it had green lasers shooting out of it. And at the base of this sculpture, there was a door and in, in a little room with just a telephone on a table. And it was one person's responsibility to go in there whenever they were getting ready to turn the lasers on. And that phone connected to the control tower at the airport. And they would have to let the airport know that the laser was going to go on during a certain amount, a certain amount of time so they can notify the incoming and outgoing flights so they didn't um, down any aircraft. And that's why it's no longer running. I think they got tired of that process. So it's... It's not really active the way it was intended to be activated. Um, around the corner and down the street on South Beach, you had a very vivid and vibrant DIY scene. Um, artists were just taking advantage of every nook and cranny. So here is a Mermaids of the Fish Market DIY fashion show in a closed fish market on uh, Washington Avenue in 1984. Uh, this gentleman on the right with the white hair, uh, artist uh, Andy Warhol, is invited to Miami by the Low Art Museum. He has an exhibition. I believe he was really taken by Miami. He returns in 1986 and does an, an entire issue with Don Johnson on the cover, documenting the DIY art scene uh, here in Miami. Um, these, this Chemical Imbalance magazine, I, I designed the cover for the first and the last issue. The, oh, and it says here, Exploring the Spiritual and Rock since 1984. There's Raymond Pettibone, Daniel Johnson on the covers, Charles Burns and Alexander Ross. We also had this great um, Libet publication. It only existed for three issues, but it was a journal of contemporary art, poetry, and fiction and critical writing. And I think someone needs to sort of reissue this. Um, then Howard Davis moves to Miami in 1980 and uh, from Montreal, Canada. And he, he forms the Artifacts Artist Group. He was a member of the National, which was a member of the National Association of Artists Organizations, which uh, was formed in the 80s, largely as pushback against Senator Jesse Helms, who was doing his best to limit NEA funding to artists like Karen Finley, who was a performance artist who liked to get intimate with yams and sweet potatoes on stage, and Robert Maplethorpe. Um, so a lot of small artist groups formed and were just doing things out in the community. Um, Howard stated that the four main goals quickly of Artifacts was to promote and showcase emerging artists um, as well as more established artists. 
this is where I, when I first met Purvis um, was in an exhibition uh, coordinated by Howard to provide a framework for artistic collaboration. We did a couple of sets for Miami Vice when they needed a sort of a typical nightclub setting. We would go in and create a nightclub for Miami Vice um, to engage with all of the various cultural communities and to promote the demystification of art in a nutshell. Um, to that end, artifacts would set up art salons and events and galleries and nightclubs. And in a way, uh, this was the beginning of the Renaissance that would eventually bring South Florida to the forefront of the global arts community. What was the support structure like for these artists and for these groups? I mean, what did they call us around in terms of how they, they managed to do things, both financially and even the way that they distributed and circulated? Well, finding abandoned fish markets to do fashion shows in, I mean, things were cheap down here. I mean, people were, did I mention, living on Lincoln Road for $400 a month, um, living on Washington Avenue. I mean, it was, it was an inexpensive city back then. It's hard to believe how inexpensive it was compared to what it is now. Um, Howard was very, also very supportive. I mean, he would help artists sell their artwork. And I mean, he would be very generous with making sure that artists got paid. And concurrent with that, his mother owned a gallery in the design district. At the, two, at the time, there were like two art galleries in the design district. There was Moose Art Gallery. Her name was Joy Moose. And then there was Barbara Gilman Gallery. So Howard was sort of doing shows at Moose Art Gallery, and he was doing shows at the Artifacts Artist Salon on Michigan Avenue and um, right off of Lincoln Road across the street from where the Freeze Ice Cream Parlor is. Uh, we were also doing uh, events at Fire and Ice, which was a nightclub in the Design District, which is where the DACRA offices currently are. Every Tuesday, we would go in cover the walls with brown paper and just come up with a theme for the evening. Here it was Cafe Dada. There would be a fashion show. The nightclub was pretty much dead on a Tuesday. So they were like, come in, do whatever you want, keep the door money, pay a DJ, not whatever. So there was a whole succession of these artifacts, events at Fire and Ice. And then there was the Wet Paint House, which is the flyer on the left, says Wet Paint. Uh, this is a group of artifacts artists who were invited to participate in the King Mango Strut, which is a, was an annual parade in Coconut Grove. They had no money to really decorate a float, per se, or even make costumes, so they bought painters' hoods and wheat flour and just threw flour on each other and um, wore these painters' masks. Um, but a lot of this was instigated by a Cuban artist named Rodolfo Tijera Ufo. He was, um, um, came here on the Mariel boat lift, um, studied sculpture, I believe, in Cuba, came here. He was living in this wet paint house um, in the Edgewater section of Miami. Um, it was a dangerous place. There were parties there pretty much every other night. They then got notice that the landlord was going to demolish the house. So the last party uh, was let's demolish it for the landlord. And everyone was encouraged to show up with sledgehammers and chains and four by four trucks. And we did our best to at least got the whole front porch pulled away. And people were always going out on the roof tripping and literally tripping on LSD and tripping off of the roof. Um, these were 
dangerous times. Uh, here are some artifacts artists uh, going to the King Mango Strut. And there's artist Davis Murphy on the left and Ufo on the right driving in a car down to uh, the King Mango Strut. These were two of the most dangerous artists working in South Florida. And I personally saw them take a propane tank and a shop vacuum cleaner and they made a flamethrower and we were doing book burnings. Sorry to any librarians who are here, but we were doing product sacrifices and book burnings using this homemade propane flamethrower. Um, I've got a selection here of live music and nightclub flyers. There was always a very robust um, club scene down here. Rave scene in the 90s had its moment in South Florida. So we have some examples of that. I had a studio and was the director of the Espanola Way Art Center um, for much of the 90s. And uh, here's a studio view. Some of the work is a, po a poetry broadside I designed for Lionel Goldbart and a chapbook of Lionel Goldbart's poetry um, created by Jeffrey Knapp, who was a very well-known and well-respected poet down here. And he had something called the Do Something Press just encouraging people to just do something. Don't complain about anything, just do something. And here from the Vasari Project, we have an example of artist and educator, Marilyn Gottlieb Roberts' um, tarot deck. It was an intuitive deck of cards. Uh, we have a zine created by filmmaker Mark Holt, and we have the business card of artist Michael Richards, um, who was living down here at the time. Um, I just want to shed some light on this artist, um, Tomata Duplenty, who was living down here um, towards the end of his life. In the beginning of his life, he was the founder of Z-Wiz Kids, which was a drag cabaret and performance, performance art troupe in Seattle in 1969. Then he later became the lead singer of the LA-based synth punk band, The Screamers, which you see him in the middle. And then he was an accomplished painter based in Miami Beach in New Orleans at the end of his career. There's some example of his work. It's still very accessible. He has not really been um, discovered by the larger community, but the people who know Tomata Duplenty love Tomata Duplenty. And um, yeah, amazing, amazing painter. And then um, Craig, here's the artist Craig Coleman, who... His here photographed by Timothy Greenfield Sanders was living in the Lower East Side in the mid 80s, was invited down to Florida to help start a nightclub. And then um, that project was abandoned and he was left stranded with no money to return to New York. So he just embedded himself here in South Florida and he was working as a painter um, by day and a drag performer under the name Varla uh, in the evening. Uh, the painting on the left is a self-portrait of Craig as Varla painted on the last year of his life. And it says on the lower left-hand side of the painting, I will not die. And then there's this great painting from the collection of the ICA called uh, Black Lezies in the Shaft Error. So there was an amazing uh, strain of humor that ran through his work and his career. And he was the subject of the film Gigantic Bitch, which in um, 1991 was written, directed, and edited by Mark Holt. And it features Craig as Varla in the loosely based on the attack of the 50-foot woman. 
uh, uh, made in 1958. And just to give you a sense of what Espanola Way and Miami Beach look like, we've just got a one-minute clip, which I hope you'll be able to hear. If you can't, you can find this online. Okay. Hey, Cray, hey, Varla, come out to Payless Shoe Store. They're having a sale on slides. And he's like, oh, my God, slides. I'll be right down. And he runs out the door, and he runs down the steps. Wee! He's sliding down the banister of the thing. Oh, my God, Payless Shoe Store is having a sale. Oh, my God, I got to get there quick. So then he comes out the front door of the Espanola Way Art Center, and he's greeted by a friend who... Um, of course, I'm forgetting her name because I'm acting all silly. But she ran Art Act Theater, which was an itinerant theater group. J.C. Carroll was her name. And um, Tomata Duplenty was featured in some of these plays. Craig was featured. Uh, Varla was featured in some of these plays. So here's Espanola Way. They're going to Payless Shoe Store. Oh, my God. Look at the pumps in the window. We got to go in there. I think I'm going to steal them. You know, Varla essentially was a drag queen that everybody loved to hate. So what happens in this film is he goes from place to place. He's kicked out of all of these different places he goes into because he's shoplifting. And then he... Um, mysteriously turns into this gigantic bitch. He's 50 feet tall, and he rampages throughout South Beach. The special effects were very low budget, so you see one character run by, and then he steps on what was actually a ketchup package, and the ketchup package explodes what looks like blood. Um, anyhow, if you want to learn more about any of this stuff, you can go to the Vasari Project in downtown Miami. You can go online, schedule an appointment, and you can just spend hours digging into people's personal histories. And uh, that's thanks to Helen Cohen, uh, Herald art critic, um, and Barbara Young, librarian. And it documents the 1945 to the present. And um, it's an amazing resource, as is the U University of Miami Special Collection Library. So access libraries, access archives, and... Uh, I want to just say thank you to these entities, to Gary Monroe, to Howard Davis, and to Timothy Greenfield Saunders. And if we have any questions. Well, I just have one. I mean, we're nearing the end of this, Kevin, but I really want to thank you for taking us through a constellation of such varied material. I'm I left so much out. I, I know. So no, I can only out. imagine. That's that why I'm going to continue with this and maybe we can do part two next <laughs> That'd year. That'd be great. But I want to know if you have like a takeaway after looking, especially because of this invitation. I know you just told me this is a project you want to embark on, but is there a takeaway looking at this and looking at these varied histories that you think sort of now 2022, looking back on these 30, 40 years that you could leave us with? Well, I will say the arts community here, the art scene, if you will, did not start 20 years ago when Art Basel opened its doors down here. It was vibrant. It was diverse. It was dangerous. It was beautiful. Um, you know, back when the city was founded, you know, it, all you needed to do back in the 1920s was, you know, go out west and meet some Seminole Indians and look at the patchwork quilt that they were making. You know, there was, there's been beauty down here. Look at this. You don't even need to go anywhere, but go look at the sun come up. I mean, this is just a very beautiful place. 
And because of that, it's instigated some very beautiful things that have been happening since time immemorial. Nice. Um, does anybody here have any questions that they want to... Victor Farinas was an artist down here who I visited. I visited the hyperspace gallery a couple of times. Victor Farinas, who's no longer here, was running a small gallery in a space behind Lincoln. You know, you have Lincoln Road proper, and then there was the alleyway behind Lincoln Road. So he had the back of some space close to where the maybe the H&M is now, which used to be the Miami Symphony. Sort of along there, there was the hyperspace gallery. Yeah, there were lots of um, incredible little spaces. And of course, you know, there was the Art Center South Florida that was were giving artists very affordable studio space. Um, they've, they've sort of morphed into another organization, Ulight, but they're still assisting artists down here. So there's always been either a great DIY scene here or people helping the artists down here like Ulite and the art, uh, the Miami-Dade County Department of Cultural Affairs. Great question. Okay, got it. Hello. Hello. So did the nonconformist sort of more uh, regular kinds of events, did they draw similar types of touring nonconformance performance groups? So did, did the Miami scene become part of, like in San Francisco, south of Market Center, Mark Pauline, that sort of survival research laboratories. So they would go to different cities and so was, was Miami one of those well, places? Great question, because Marky Pauline and Survival Research Labs was invited here by Artifacts. And there was a venue here called the Institute, which was a, an abandoned movie theater on Lincoln Road. And it was a dangerous abandoned movie theater with rebar, exposed rebar and hanging concrete and... Uh, Rudolfo Tijera was, it was a studio space, a collective studio space. And uh, yes, so people were coming to Miami and Miami through like, for instance, Howard Davis was exporting Miami to other cities. And there were uh, several of these like suitcase shows, uh, a micro show in New York that a lot of Miami artists work went up to New York. I didn't share any of those posters, but yeah. Those were happening. So there was great cross-pollination. Um, a group called the Mud Men, I forget where they were based, came down here. Um, the, the Mud Men uh, were here. I donned a Mud Men loincloth and mask. And, but I won up them. I actually got, I, I made a necklace of a actual cow hearts that I got from the market. And um, once people were engaged with me and then they saw there were real hearts defrosting on my chest kind of anyhow yes good question thank you also casually missed out on those images too yeah see. there were some th those will make it into part two <laughs> nice. one thing there were not so many cameras didn't exist the way they exist now you know yeah. the film is out there but um you know you have to know where to look okay if there are any other questions before we close up our episode no 
Thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much for this. Can, can I, I Can I say, can I make yeah. one, one more thing? Please. You're applauding. You're applauding. Thank you. At 5.30, I'm releasing a broadside with Exile Books here at the fair. So I'm ha very happy to be here working with my two favorite organizations, Name Publications, Doubleheader, and Exile Books on the same day. So I don't know how it happened, but the stars aligned for me. So thank Great. you. Thanks. Thank you.